All right, 2 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to be reading verse 1, and then I'm going to read verses 13 through 15 for our scripture reading. And we'll kind of just take up the rest of the chapter as we go. I hope you've had an opportunity to maybe read this chapter earlier this week, uh, because there's a lot here. But let's go ahead, if you found your place there, and get ready to hear God's word. And so if you have found your place, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. Every week I think, you know, I need to write the introduction a little bit longer so I can have them have opportunity to sit down and stand up without it being so fast. And then I forget how fast I talk. Uh, Alright, so 2 Samuel chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1, verses 13 through 15 in a sermon entitled, God is Willing and Able. Here's what the precious and errant and fallible word of God says. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methegamah from the hand of the Philistines. And then we go to verse 13 now. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all of his people. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, by your grace we are your people. It is by your grace that we hear your word with faith. It is by your grace that our faith is increased and our love abounds more and more. Father, would you be pleased to do your work among us again through your son Jesus Christ by the pouring of your spirit upon us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. so let me ask you, how's your head this morning? Right, I, I know it's spring break, right? Heads get a little wacky this time of year, a little busy, a little distracted, full of all sorts of things. You thinking clearly this morning? <laughs> Thank you for answering honestly. I feel like there's very few times in my life where I would ever say that I'm thinking clearly, but uh, I, I want us to understand this. And the reason I'm asking this question is because I want to ask you this. How does your view of reality align with God's word this morning? See, it, it's my hope and prayer as we open up Second Samuel chapter 8 that the Lord would be pleased to reorientate our minds to the reality of his faithfulness. See, as we've seen over the course of several weeks now, as we've been in 2 Samuel 7, our God is abundantly faithful. He has been faithful. He is faithful. And guess what? He will always be faithful. If you haven't heard it, well, you need to hear it this morning. And if you have heard it, guess what? You need to hear it again. See, what we learn from from now chapter 8, which is really just an illustration, by the way, of what we've heard promised in chapter 7, it is this, that God is willing and he is able. 
See, chapter 8 actually consists of four literary units, and they all begin with the word uh, struck down. In fact, you know that the Old Testament didn't come to us already with chapters and verses in it, right? And so in order to distinguish literary units from apart from one another, uh, the authors would include literary devices for us to be able to pick up on. And, and so there are four clear units just in chapter 8, and they all begin with this phrase, struck down. You look at it and you see it in verse 1 of chapter 8, uh, where it says... After this, it came to pass that David attacked. Now, of course, we in the English have the word attacked, but actually in the Hebrew, that's the same word used at the end of chapter 5, verses 24 through 25, translated there as strike down or struck down. It's the same word that's used in verse 2 of our text, verse 3 of our text, and verse 13 of our text. It says that David struck down the Philistines. David struck down the Moabites. David struck down Hadad Azer, the, the son of Rehab, the son of Zobah. And then David struck down the Edomites. Those are your four sections. Well, why would that matter? Well, just one of those sections, even just at a cursory glance, it sticks out among the others. Because there are four literary units, and one consists of one verse, one consists of one verse... The final one consists of two verses, and there's this one in the middle that consists of ten verses. Maybe that one in the middle has something that we need to hear this morning. So, so that's kind of the map of chapter 8 orientated for us, but, but what's on the map? What does the map say? Well, the easy answer is God, again, is not only willing to help his people, but he is able to help his people. Now, that in one sense almost seems so simple that it's not even worth saying. And yet, it is so easily forgotten by God's people that the scriptures seem to say that everywhere. God is willing and God is able. And then there's this record of God's people's response to that reality. It's a constant struggle for them to actually believe that God is willing and God is able. In fact, they, they seem to constantly doubt that very reality. So again, the Lord graciously reminds us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he is both willing and able to help his people. But don't take my word for it. You want to see it in the text? Okay. Or you could just take my word for it if you want. It's worth nothing. But uh, let's see it in the text. Okay. First, we see that God is willing to do what he has promised. That's the first thing we see here is that God is willing. If you don't know, your two points are going to be God is willing and God is able. There you go. We see this chapter actually contains, first and foremost, the fulfillment of a promise made to David. As I said earlier, it's really an illustration of the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, particularly verses 9 through 11. In 2 Samuel 9 through 11, I'll just read verse 11 here. It says this, it says, Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your 
enemies. Now that word have caused, it's really an interesting word. It's not necessarily something that's rooted in the past, the way it's displayed to us in the English. It really is promoting or promising something that will happen in the future. And as we understand the theology of rest we see from the rest of the scriptures, uh, we need to know something, right? The author expects the hearers of these words in 2 Samuel 8 to connect this promise uh, with what's already unfolded in chapter 7. And and the reason I say that is for several reasons, but mainly because the focus of this promise of rest here is from physical enemies. I have caused you to rest from all your enemies. And then what chapter 8 goes on to do is chapter 8 lists every major player, all of Israel's neighbors... In fact, here's the way the author lays it out for us in 2 Samuel 8. Uh, the Lord defeats, or David, through the, the Lord through David defeats the enemies, he says, on the west, on the east, on the north, and the south, so that Israel is secure. He, he's painting this picture for us that the enemies of Israel on every side have been defeated by the time David is done in chapter 8. So these victories, they've got to be correlated and connected with that promise in verse 11. But if that's not enough, I want to offer one more reason why I think this is the case. It's because the promises in verses 9 through 11 of 2 Samuel 7, remember, were also a promise to make David's name great. And how does our passage end? With David making a name. And the reader here understands it's not David as much as it is the Lord who has made a name for David, just as he's promised. So the Lord promises victory and rest for Israel and a great name for David in chapter 7, verses 9 through 11 of 2 Samuel. In chapter 8, it just summarizes the fulfillment of this promise. So we read at the very last verse, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all of his people. Now, if this was the spiritual reality for which God's people have always waited long for, the story would have ended just right there and we would all just flown right into eternity, praise be to God. But that's not the case. But even so, there is a physical, temporary, what we call typological fulfillment here, right? Peace within and peace without. Rest from Israel's enemies from without and rest from Israel's enemies from within. And David himself is actually ruling over the people. He's administering judgment and justice with the land. The Lord has promised and the Lord is fulfilled. Which is really the moral of the story here, isn't it? Here is Israel dwelling in their appointed place. Planted in the garden of God's divine blessing. Just as he said he would do. But but really, there's more here. This doesn't just carry with it all the promises we've seen to David. Uh, the, The fulfillment of the promises the Lord made to Abraham are also seen here. This isn't just the fulfillment of David's promise in 2 Samuel 7. It's really the fulfillment of the Lord's promises to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. See, there are many connections we've seen as we move through this text that connects what's happening here to the promise made to Abraham so that David himself appears to kind of be an Abrahamic-like figure in a way. That actually goes without saying because the promise of the Lord spoken to David in chapter 7 is really that great name nation promise spoken to Abraham in Genesis 12. 
When the Lord promises to make David's name great here, the reader ought to hear, they're supposed to hear, man, that sounds a lot like the Lord's promise he made to Abraham to make him a great name. Furthermore, that whole land promise is actually here fulfilled. Read chapter 8 verse 3 with me and look at what it says. It says, David also defeated Hadad Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. Now, interesting. This, this draws this picture, this conjures up in our mind Genesis 15, where the Lord says Abraham would receive land from the great river all the way to the Red Sea. What do you think that great river was called? Euphrates. And look here, he's now receiving it. Obviously, Abraham's seed has become a great nation. Fulfilling the promise of Abraham in, in chapter 17 of Genesis. Israel's now possessing the, the gate of his enemies as Abraham was promised by the Lord in Genesis 22. So it's worth noting that the fulfillment of this promise to Abraham really has come in two stages. Right? You remember us going to, back to Joshua some time ago and saying that all the Lord's promises were really fulfilled to Israel? I mean, in, in two places specifically, it says every good word the Lord had spoken to Israel was actually fulfilled at that point. But remember what the problem was? They had all their physical, temporary, typological promises, but what did they not have? They had not yet had rest. They had not actually secured the land. So that was stage one. But this is now the final fulfillment depicted as coming through the hand of David. The inheritance secured by Joshua is now made manifest through the reign of David. This is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. And listen, this is important to grasp. And I know you may be asking, well, how in the world is this important? Because, I, really, Pastor Cody, aren't, aren't all of these really just fulfilled in Christ? So if it's fulfilled here, then, then is there any really need for more fulfillment? Well, that's partially true. But remember, the issue is, is this is physical, temporary, typological promise and fulfillment. Th these things pointed beyond themselves to a greater promise and fulfillment. The point here is the promise to Abraham is here fulfilled. But the fact that the story goes on to depict the loss of the promise is itself a testimony that this is merely physical, temporary, and typological. Why is that important? It's important because the alternative is to somehow understand this story as depicting a failure on God's part to do what he's promised. Nothing could be further from the truth. I want us to understand what we're actually seeing is being clearly depicted for God's people who when they would later read this, 2 Samuel, they were reading that God is willing and able, they would understand that what they're experiencing is not a failure of their God. And so for our purposes, we need to merely acknowledge this as this application. Yahweh has fulfilled what he's promised to David so he could be trusted. That's really the application here. He's fulfilled his promises to David so that you and I might know here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables that Yahweh has fulfilled what he's promised to us also. This is the essence of faith. 
This is the deep-seated conviction that God will fulfill His promise. But, but I think one of the issues we have trusting that is, is twofold. We, we don't trust in the right God and we don't know the right promise. I have to say that because the reality is, of course we've got to know the right God, we've, but we also have got to know what it is He's promised. It does us no good to have a deep-seated conviction, no matter how deep it is, that God's going to prosper you, He's going to make you rich and healthy for the rest of your life, because when that is not fulfilled, it's not because God is unwilling or unable, it's because He's not promised that. Not here, not now at least. And so let's make sure we understand the right God. Why? Because the world is full of counterfeit gods. We have to make sure we understand the right God if we're going to know that Yahweh has fulfilled what he's promised to David so he can be trusted. We must understand the right God because the world is full of counterfeit gods. According to John Calvin, get this, your heart is an idol factory that churns out false gods by the bucket load. It's just what your heart does. I was so encouraged yesterday. We were taking Addie and uh, all the cousins to get, well, not all the cousins, but Addie and Tegan to get their ears pierced. Uh, so we were in the store that's called Claire's, right, Amy? That's the right one? Yes. Um, and so Bubster had to go, which was great because he had to go support all five girls um, in Claire's. Uh, and if you've ever been in Claire's, you can stand out there for a bit. And so uh, they had some money to go shopping afterwards. And my niece, Ellie Jo, came across this little thing of jewelry that said, follow your heart. And she said, well, this is pretty, but we don't follow our hearts. This is wrong. She held it up to Addie and, and said, Addie, do you follow your heart? And Addie said, no, we follow Jesus. <laughs> And that's encouraging because to know our heart is to know an idol factory. We, apart from the grace of God, what we do is we distort, we twist, and we suppress the knowledge of God given to us. So if this is the case, how do we know that we're trusting the right God, the only true and living God? How can we know that? Well, it's not by following our hearts. It's by humbly submitting our minds and hearts to this. To God's word. By the way, not just once, but constantly bringing what it is that we think about God to his word. So that the light of his word can either reveal it as false so we can get rid of it, or as true so we can cling more tightly to it. See, we may be tempted to think that God is slow to forgive and that God is quick to get angry. That God's a lot like me when I'm in a foul mood and my kids are being loud. But then I bring that to the light of God's word and find actually it's quite the contrary. He is exceedingly patient. Almost like ridiculously patient. He is slow to anger. I bring that false conception of God to the light of, by the way, the whole counsel of God. Not just taking a verse here and there and patchworking it together to create my own Frankenstein God. But I subject my whole mind to the whole counsel of God so that my whole mind may grasp to whatever extent His grace allows of exactly who He is. And what do I find? A God who bore with an unfaithful people for centuries. And in the end, even though their sins merited eternal separation, 
He took on their flesh and blood to bear their sins away on the cross. Yes, my God is a jealous God. He's jealous for his bride, but he's not quick to anger. To the contrary, he is quick to forgive. His mercies are new every single morning. My God, the only true and living God, is the God who sends rain and sunshine to the just and the unjust alike. He declares peace to his enemies and invites them into an eternal feast that he's prepared for all who trust in him. Friends, the point is, is that our theology must be constantly subjected to the renewing effect of the word of God. So that even this morning, this isn't a new message, is it? Please tell me this is not the first time you've heard that God is willing and able at First Baptist Church of Greg Gables. But here's the point. We need it just as much this morning as we needed it last week and the week before. Why? Because our idol factories are constantly distorting what is true. Constantly believing that he's not willing or able. My flesh is still bent on distorting and the devil is still committed to deceiving. The whole world works on the basis of philosophies and elemental principles that are contrary to a true knowledge of God. And yet, the true knowledge of God, of the right God, has come. Specifically in the person of Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty five through 27, we find this testimony. At, at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. What Jesus declares is there is no knowledge of the Father apart from the Son. Doesn't that remind you of Philip, right? Isn't that exactly what Jesus told Philip on the night he was betrayed? Philip asked to see the Father. What did Jesus tell him in John 14? Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1, 1 1-4 actually declares the same truth. To know the true and living God is to know Jesus Christ. So the right God, we must make sure that when we talk about God fulfilling his promises, we're talking about the right God. But secondly, we have to make sure we have the right promise as well. The right promise is nothing short, by the way, of the new heavens and the new earth. You could put it, you could add more to that, but in a nutshell, that's, that's the right promise. The new heavens and new earth. The right promise is, in this world, you have tribulation. That's the promise. But take heart, because I've overcome the world. Revelation chapter 21 and 22, that's the promise. That final day of judgment when Christ returns, casting the devil, death, and all who continue to rebel against him into the eternal pit of fire. Every cause of sin and all lawbreakers removed from the planet. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 9, Paul says this, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. We see why. Because it's now suffering and it's later glory. 
I've got more to say on that in just a moment, but I'll go ahead and, and continue. We, we see that Yahweh is the Lord, the God of Israel is willing. We also see in this passage that he's not just willing. You know what I'm going to say next, right? He's able. God is able to do what he has promised. He's able. This actually isn't just super clear if you read through our text. So just a little reminder of how it is we read this genre of historical narrative in 2 Samuel. You could read through chapter 8 and not get that the primary point of this is not that David is an incredible fighter. But, But the primary point of this is actually that God is able to defeat all of Israel's enemies. That's the point here, is that God is able to defeat Israel's enemies. Now, there are little hints of that in verses 6 and 14. It's almost parenthetical. David is defeating the Philistines, the Moabites, the Syrians, and David's making a name. But behind, besides, in front, or in David is David's God. The Lord's stronger than all of his enemies. That really is the message. And as we've heard David confess last week, or at the end of chapter 7... David's conviction is that there is no one like Yahweh. There's none besides him. No God besides him. And this week what we're seeing is that actually illustrated. We see it in in Samuel itself. In fact, you think of the whole redemptive narrative. Remember, this is one story. If you haven't read 1st and 2nd Samuel in a while, go back and skim. You've got to keep everything that came before in mind as we come to 2nd Samuel 8. For instance, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, who are the Israelites fighting? The Philistines, remember? The Lord had already pronounced judgment against Eli and his sons, and his sons die in the battle in a single day, and Eli falls under the weight of his own weightiness. He breaks his neck because he refused to give his weightiness to the Lord. But what happens to the Lord himself? He's apparently defeated by the Philistines. You remember? Who would have thought Yahweh defeated by the Philistines? He must have been because his his people were defeated. That's the way the Philistines interpret the situation. That's why they they take the ark and they they march it into Dagon's Dagon temple. Because their God, Dagon, defeated Israel's God. The problem is Dagon has a pretty Dagon hard time staying upright in the temple. Instead, he keeps ending up flat on his face. That's right, Travis. You're right, bud. You know what's even more fascinating about that? After he defeats Dagon, they begin to transport him around because wherever Yahweh is, wherever the ark is, he's defeating the Philistines. And guess what? He's doing it without a sword, without a man, without anything. And he's just laying them low. Plagues break out against the Philistines. They move him here. They move him there. He's like a hot potato. And they're like, what are we going to do? In fact, they actually show greater reverence in all of Israel's God than Israel does. Here's the point. Yahweh, Israel's God, defeats the Philistines and their God, and he does so without a single Israelite. Is that your conception of who God is? It has to be, because that's who he is. Which leads us further on to 1 Samuel chapter 7, where Samuel intercedes on behalf of Israel. He offers a sacrifice, and the Lord delivers Israel, defeats the Philistines again. So what does Samuel do? Listen to this. He raises up an Ebenezer. A stone of help. 
Did you notice what Hadad Ezer's name is here? I mean, it's Hadad Ezer. <laughs> but that last part looks a lot like Ezer, doesn't it? What it means is, Hadad is my help. So what's the point here? Why do you have this large passage and then one verse is given to the Philistines, a major enemy? One verse to the Moabites, a major enemy? You got ten verses of this king from Zoab who is really just nowhere in the rest of the biblical narrative. He's a non-consequential player in extra-biblical material. He's not a major player within this narrative at all. So why so much emphasis on this guy? Because of his name. Eight times. Who is Hadad? Hadad is the personal name of a Canaanite god, a thunder god. It's the personal name of that Lord. His name is, that god is my help. And here's what we're supposed to see as we work through that. Hadad Ezer actually has to cry to help, but not to Hadad, but to Syria. And Syria's no help either. There is no help. There's none coming from his god or another nation or a man or any place else. Why? Because David's an awesome fighter. No, because David's exceptional with a sword and a shield. No, because Yahweh is David's help. And Yahweh is our help. Yahweh is stronger. That's the point. Yahweh's not only willing in the promises he makes, but he's able to fulfill them. Which promises? All of them. (laughs) What's the Lord promised? Is his arm too short? No, he's promised that he is able to save and save how? To the uttermost. There's actually a ton of things in this passage, little details that help to prove the point I just made. But all you need to hear in this is that the Lord is willing and the Lord is able, that he is stronger. There's no God like him. We heard David confess it, that's his conviction and now we're seeing a picture of it. So you are confronted with the word of God and you have to ask yourself, do I believe this? Or do I believe that he's not willing or not able? He is. He's willing and he's able. David obviously gets that message. So he hamstrings the horses. He dedicates the spoil to the Lord himself. So we've considered that the Lord is willing. We considered how he fulfilled his promise to David, how he fulfilled his promise to Abraham. And therefore, as we're confronted with this same word, that the Lord will fulfill his promise to us. We've also seen the Lord. He's able to fulfill his promises. He's able to overcome Israel's enemies. So, is he any less capable to overcome yours? Friends, there is only one true and living God. We have come to know him through his word as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That one true and living God has promised to save all who cry out. Who cry out trusting that the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is sufficient to take away all your sin. Sufficient to clothe you in his righteousness that you might being united to him by faith receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. That is our God And that's his promise. I think one more thing before I close, I thought about this week as I looked at all of these enemies in chapter 8. I wanted to to ask, what about the enemies? Because I I think we struggle just a little bit because we've got a hard time identifying who the enemy is. What's the enemy here? And I'm sure all sorts of verses come to mind for you, but I I just want to take a moment here and consider this carefully at the end. It's clear from the Old Testament itself 
that our enemy is spiritual. And I say Old Testament, I want you to focus on that. I think it is clear from the Old Testament itself that our enemy is spiritual. And I think we lose sight of that because the Old Testament's so concrete, right? We have all these object lessons and the enemies really are physical. The Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites are enemies. But they're actually pointing to something even beyond themselves. They're not the ultimate enemy. Where does the story begin? Let me ask you. Was the Garden of Eden invaded by the nations? No, it was created by God. Or was it a serpent who lied? Distorting the character of God. It was a spiritual enemy. It was the serpent. So what happens as soon as they leave in the Garden of Exile? What's the enemy? Well, now it's Cain, of course, right? It's a physical enemy. He's the one who slays Abel. No. It was sin crouching at the door that it might have him. It was him following his father, the serpent, as a seed of the serpent. It's always been a spiritual enemy. We see it over and over again. By the time you get to Genesis 12, where we see these very earthy promises are fulfilled in the Old Testament itself, we're supposed to know that the problem is spiritual. It's deeper than physical. The physical will never suffice because the problem is you. The problem is me. The problem is a heart that is bent on rebellion in a mind that constantly works deception. So it was that the flood could not cleanse the heart of man. Listen, Noah and his son's hearts did not come out on the other side any less full of treachery and treason against their God than they had been on the other side. Listen, see, apart from God's grace, we've got a really difficult time remembering we are created to reflect the goodness glory and righteousness of our God. We were created to fill this earth with his image, reflecting his glory, expanding his benevolent kingdom, bringing it into that consummate state where all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. Friends, that's what we're created for. It is critical that we understand that our problem, our problem is not flesh and blood, guys. It never has been. That didn't change when Jesus arrived on the scene. Our problem is the ancient dragon deceives us and we gladly follow him until by God's grace, he loosens the chains, removes the veils from our hearts and we see him for who he really is in the face of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you think about what does this text now mean for us? I mean, it's not an unfair comparison to understand that the devil has established garrisons in every human heart. So how does the kingdom of Christ advance? Does it advance through sword and spear? Does it advance through legislation? No, the garrison is in the human heart, which means there is but one weapon saint. What can penetrate the hardness of human hearts and turn it from stone to flesh? There is but one. It's the words of life that our Lord Jesus Christ spoke. It's the proclamation of his gospel that declares peace to those who are far off and those who are near. That's the word. And listen, we have a responsibility right now to respond to that word. So so what response is appropriate in keeping with the reality that God is both willing and able to save you to the uttermost? What is the response that's appropriate for the word that says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age? 
Friends, Jesus calls us here and now to take up our crosses and follow him. Our victory, like his, actually comes through our suffering and then comes glory. But, but hear me, that doesn't mean we just wait sitting on our hands. <laughs> Cloistered together in our monastic huddles, avoiding outsiders. No, he has actually called us into the world, not out of it. So what does it look like for us to embrace a theology of the cross that sends us into the world to overcome evil with good? Like, like hear me, it, it's not enough for us to gather here week in and week out. Most of us struggle to even really get that down. And that's, that's really good. But friends, when we're here, it's got to have an impact on our lives. In our homes, our places of work, the way we interact with our community, the way we vote, the way we educate our kids, the way we interact with our neighbor, the way we interact with our lost family members. Every single arena of life should demonstrate the fact that we realize we are vessels of clay carrying around the light of life to the praise of his glorious grace. So, so listen, I don't know what that means for you. I, I really don't. But, but here's what it most certainly means in one way, shape, or form. You're called to fight, to enter the fray, to respond. You are called to love. You are called to live for the sake of his glory. So a simple question before we close this morning. What will it look like this week to live your life like you believe that your father is faithful, willing, and able to save you to the uttermost. Answer that for me anytime. Because each and every one of us have to answer that very question. What would my life look like if I really believed that he's faithful, willing, and able? Because we hear it every week. The struggle is... When Monday comes, when Tuesday comes, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, is it still affecting our life? Still grounding everything in our circumstances in this truth that our God is abundantly faithful. Not only faithful, but he's willing and able to save us to the uttermost. Do you realize what a wonderful message that is? It's a life-changing, life-altering message. Or at least it should be. I pray that it is for you. Would you stand as we pray together this morning? Gracious Father, you know how we still struggle to believe that you are willing and able. Lord, even after the sending of your son. Lord, after hearing of his life, death, and resurrection. We struggle to believe that you are at work. Bringing to completion that which you have done. Father, our prayer is that you would simply captivate our minds that every opportunity becomes an opportunity to honor you. Would you help us to take every thought captive? To boldly proclaim a message that yes is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the very words of life. Would we labor together to advance the kingdom of Christ here on this earth in ways that bring you glory. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. We ask for your help in this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.